Glenna Easton, and today we are going to be studying and reading from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 3, verse 1 through 21. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. The second, Keliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shepatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. They were born to David in Hebron. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Ishbosheth did not dare say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. Good, said David. I will make an agreement with you, but I demand one thing of you. Do not come into my presence unless you bring Michal, daughter of Saul, when you come to see me. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her all the way to Burim. Then Abner said to him, Go back home. So he went back. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner spoke also to the Benjamites in person. Then he went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole tribe of Benjamin wanted to do. When Abner, who had 20 men with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Anyone brave enough to read all those Hebrew names in public? deserves some kind of heavenly reward. Well done, Glenna. Old Testament narrative can be hard. It's 21 verses of a lot of names, a lot of customs that we don't know. It can be tricky. I I can just imagine most Christians hear a text like that, or by by verse 7, you're fading on what exactly is being said. It's just harder. It's just way easier when the Apostle Paul says, do this or don't do that. It's way harder in the Old Testament. It just is. 
And, there, and that's okay. There's reasons for that. It's, it's stories. Stories are always hard to interpret. Knowing the plot, characters, understanding those things is more laborious. It takes more work, and it's part of a larger story that we're, we're, we're waiting 167 hours before we come back to it again. It's just harder. Uh, it's also just ancient customs and practices and little sayings that we just don't know. It's not speaking stories that we would tell. It's speaking ancient Near Eastern stories that we are just distanced from. Yet here's the thing. This is God's word. As much as Psalm 23 or Romans chapter 12 or whatever your favorite text is, this is equally and authoritatively God's word. And we want to listen to it. It takes a little bit more work. And that's partly my job to help. To help you understand and to see the beauty of God's word and its significance. Because as much as any of us probably reading this would be like, what in the world am I to do with that? I would like to tell you that the thrust of these 21 verses is simply saying, children of God, it is not enough to know the truth. God wants you to live the truth. Like There's the thrust. There's the, there's the text. There's the message that these verses want to say. You may think it's enough to know the truth. God is going to say to you, he expects you to live the truth. Now, he's going to explain that through some nooks and crannies of a few verses here and there that I'm going to show you, but I wanted you to just hear that up front as we read a text that can just be hard to understand, and that's okay. But let's do the work and take seriously that this is God's word, and we want to hear what he has to say to us through it. I remember being in a small group in California. It was mostly young dads. It was an all-guys group. There was an older guy in the group named Dennis. What a sweet brother. In fact, he just passed away recently, and I was able to watch his funeral online. He had moved out to be with one of his, his daughters. He was in his 60s at the time, and most of us guys were in our 30s, and we had young kids, or we were single, but we were new in careers or whatever. And he just ministered to us at 6 a.m. every Thursday morning uh, and, would, and would rebuke us if we didn't show and was encouraging and exhorting and accountable, and it was great. And there was a guy named Wes in the group, and he was kind of newer to the faith, and he would come and gather, and he would say uh, one of the times when we had just, after we'd probably met eight or nine times, eight or nine weeks, he's like, how do you guys do this? This is crazy. Like, I'm learning new stuff every single week. How are you applying this to your lives and letting it transform you? And everybody was quiet. Oh, yeah. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's not just about knowledge. It's not just about knowing the truth. It's about living it. And I feel like a text like this speaks powerfully to churches and traditions like ours where we know a lot about the Bible. But the goal is not Bible trivia competitions or sword drills. Because if it was about Bible knowledge, probably Satan would beat us all. Probably the demons are well-versed in the truth of the resurrection. They have no doubt of the authority of Scripture. They have no question about exactly who Jesus is. But like James 2 warns the Christian, we are to be doers of the word. So this text is reminding us, hey, it's not just about Bible study. It's about Bible living. Even if it's told in this ancient narrative with a bunch of hard names to pronounce, 
that I'm going to try to explain for you now. Let's pray as we turn to the text. Father, you are such a good God. Thank you that you shepherd your sheep, that you father your children by teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training us in righteousness. Thank you that you love us so much that you want us to know what is right and good and true, and you hold us accountable in it. So help us to heed the warnings that this text gives and to see the error of the character named Abner and to not be like him, but to be like Christ. So help us, Lord, to see what you want us to see, to understand what you want us to understand, but by your grace to be transformed in the way that you want us to be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, giving you that initial summary of the thrust of the text, I'm going to start with this as a summary of these first five verses. The Bible helps us submit to Jesus' lordship, the fact that he's king, Vera's right, define the word, lordship means not just that Jesus is our savior, and he is, but he's also our king, he's our lord. And recognizing his lordship means we acknowledge his reign, his expectation, his commands over us. He's king, we're not. So the Bible helps us submit to Jesus' lordship by showing us those who failed to obey the Lord. And I think you actually get a glimpse of that in those first five verses. The text starts with this summary of this conflict between the house of Saul and the house of David and saying that David's house is growing stronger and Saul's is growing weaker And another step in that direction is taken here. And then you get this genealogy, which again, most of us come to and say, what am I supposed to do with this? Except not read it because it causes me to spit to read the words. And what do I do with all these names and all these places and all these people? Why are you giving me these things? Well, that's because biblically speaking, a genealogy is like a resume. It gives you a it gives you an overview of a person's life, ministry, success, and failures. And you see some of that in here. The listing of all the sons born to David show the listing of all his wives. David was wrong to have more than one wife. His many wives went against God's specific command to kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God said to kings, don't do it. And you need to know why. You need to understand why this is. Because this is what you did if you were trying to gain power and build treaties and gather gather control over regions. You would negotiate by taking that king's niece and that king's daughter and that king's sister, and you built your treaties by building your family, and that's what everybody did, and God says, you're not everybody. You're just not everybody. So I'm commanding you, Deuteronomy 17, 17, don't do it. And then what do you see here? Even a man after God's own heart, what do you see? List of all his wives and all his sons. Beyond even the command to kings, the Bible is Clear in God's intentions for marriage in general. Genesis 2.24 talks about one man and one woman. And Jesus echoes that, confirms that, stamps that himself in Matthew chapter 19. David's 
Polygamy was common in the ancient world, as I mentioned, a sign of power and status. And you even get a glimpse of the, of the Bible winking that at you at the end of verse 3, where it says, the third son, Absalom, the son of Ma'akah, try to say that without choking, daughter, look at this, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. There it is. See it? That was another king's daughter. That was part of his treaty, building power, building influence, not trusting. And it's hard. Let's not just look at David. Let's look at us. It is hard to obey God's commands when the world is wanting you to gather up security by its practices and its procedures. It is hard to trust the Lord. David struggled with that too. It's worth noting that the Bible does not always directly condemn every occurrence of sin, or in this case, polygamy in the Old Testament. It's not like there's always a little footnote. Now, you know God doesn't approve of this. It's made clear elsewhere in Scripture, number one. But the genealogies themselves tell the story, right? If you look at that list, you could hear the resume of the king, a man who decided he thought he would be wise enough and mature enough to have way more children than he could actually parentally love and care for, way more wives than he could husband at any one time, and the result was family chaos. For example, Amnon sexually abused his own half-sister. Absalom murdered his half-brother and led a civil war against his own father trying to kill him. And Odania tried, Odania is an interesting name, uh, Adonai, it's a combination of Adonai and Yahweh. His name literally means Yahweh is my Lord. Odania tried to take his father's throne, one of his father's wives, and was ultimately executed for his arrogance. Brothers and sisters, the Lord wants us to take his commands Seriously. And if anything, this list of names and this little resume should remind us to make sure we are aligning our lives and practices to the ways the Lord has established in Scripture. To be sure, it is hard to do. There are real penalties, though. There are real consequences and there's real suffering that happens when creatures do not acknowledge the design of the Creator. And marriage and family is one of those. And more directly, God's design for the family and for marriage matters to God in our lives. If you're married, love your spouse. That's a a beautiful exhortation that is its own kind of challenge. As anyone who's married for any period of time knows, it is work, it is sacrifice, it is commitment. That is God's command. If you're single, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and the ways in God's timing and providence in which he's placed you. Don't bend on that as you honor the Lord. And if you're a child even, thinking, marriage, I'm 13. Remember to honor your father and mother as just, again, a simple practice of that familial relation that God has established for all his people. When we move to verses 6 to 11, now we begin to see the character of Abner. And again, here's where the narrative actually does help us. It's easy to miss. 
So you're totally excused if you missed it, but actually verse 6 is trying to tell you that Abner is bad business. Right? It says, during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, so there's the context, end of verse 6, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. There it is. There's the lens that wants you to know Abner's not a good guy. He's using this conflict between the two houses to strengthen his own position. He was driven. He was ambitious. He was looking for power and control. He was going to leverage it any way that he could. And here's the thing. He was forceful. In fact, if you skip down to verse 11, even though Ish-bosheth did challenge him, notice what verse 11 says. He was actually afraid of Abner. So the king is scared of Abner. What impression do you have of that? He's a mover and a shaker. He's coming in a room and he's taking control. He's totally doing things for his benefit and his gain. And now you're going to see that the text wants you to look at him as a bad example. But his ambitions caught up with him. He's accused by King Ishbosheth of sleeping with a concubine. Again, in, in those, in the, especially in these pagan world, you would have this familial house with wives and second-tier wives and just totally outside the design that God has given for the family. And obviously, Abner decided that he was going to partake in some way, and the king rebukes him for it. Whether it's true or not, the text doesn't even tell us. The fact that Ishbosheth is a little nervous but still confronts him tells you that it might be true, but that's beside the point. The text just shows you how Abner responds. Rather than saying, oh, king, I'm so sorry, or please forgive me, he puffs his chest out. Look at his language. When asked why he slept with his father's concubine, Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, am I a dog's head on Judah's side? Now again, that's where you need to little translate that, please. Now I'm sorry to say this to all you dog lovers, my daughter included, but in the ancient world, dogs were considered like rodents. This is Bible truth. That's why we don't have a dog. No, just and nobody would, nobody would say, I, I got a new pet. What'd you get? I got a cute little rat from New York City. It just, I just would have just kissed, kissed this little chick a little I mean, no one would do that with a rat. You would be like, I, you have a rat in your house? Oh, it runs free. It's fine. It's usually under the couch right where you're sitting. Like, just imagine how you would feel at dinner with this rat running through and then someone's feeding it under the table. That is how in the ancient world they felt about, sorry to say, but it's in the Bible. That's how they felt about dogs. So by least, fair enough, even if you would think that's culturally backwards, hear the rebuke, right? Hear it. Am I, am I a rat's head on Judah's side? That's the other kingdom. Listen to Abner. He is heeding rebuke. This very day, I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David or do you feel how powerful he thinks he is? Yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal, here's, now he makes like this kind of, this cursing language. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, 
if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath. Wait a second, did you just hear that? But did you just hear what he just admitted? He knew that God had committed and, off, and positioned David to be the king. He knew that, but still saw the advantage of going with Ishbosheth. And so the moment Ishbosheth challenges Abner, Abner decides, I'm just going to switch sides. Abner knew what God had said, yet he did not obey it himself. Brothers and sisters, may this not be us. May this not be the way that we live. Whatever it may be, whatever the truth from God's word that we would know, that God would desire, whatever he has given in his revealed will for, how, for us to live and to worship and to minister with our money, with our time, with our bodies, whatever it may be, let, let us not respond like Abner. That's why I summarize these verses and say this, a key vital sign of a healthy Christian is living the truth, not just knowing the truth. Like if, we, if you're going to kind of check oxygen levels and blood pressure and heart rate, and you're, like these, we call these vitals. Like if you want to have a spiritual vital, if you want to kind of check, is this person healthy? If they have knowledge of what is true and there's a massive disconnect between how they live, Lord, help them. That is not a healthy Christian. Plain and simple, that may not even be a Christian. Again, even the demons know the truth and shudder, James 2. What would make a person know the truth and not live the truth? And I'm not even thinking Abner now, I'm thinking us. Like, what would make us know the truth and not live the truth? I can think of three potential things that are just worth reflecting on. One would be this. It's when we minimize or reject God's holiness. Maybe we just don't like the idea of a holy God. Maybe we just, we, we just like this loving grandfatherly figure, but we don't like this sovereign Lord. It just doesn't fit the cultural ethos or our personal preference. But his holiness is the reality for our world and our lives. He is not just Savior, he is King. Another reason might be that we minimize or reject God's goodness. We just don't like his design. We don't like the, what, what he thinks is the life we're to live or the expectations. I can imagine David with all his wives thinking, that's just not how the world works, God. God's saying, you didn't make the world. I did. When we reject God's goodness, we do not see his design as grace for our lives. They are grace. And the third option that we, I can think of is that we minimize or outright reject God's lordship. We don't see his reign as a blessing. We fight it. We want the Savior, but we don't want the Lord. We want the Savior, but we don't want the King. Uh, shockingly, on the sign above the cross of the crucified Lord Jesus was the title King in all three world languages. He wasn't just a crucified lamb. He was a crucified king. 
I've, what comes to mind is that passage in 1 John that is hard to read and, and at some sense should, for the Christian, cause us to reflect deeply on what it means to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. 1 John 2, 3-6, I put it in your notes. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And then verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. Notice the language of truth. Truth truth isn't just an intellectual idea. It's something embodied. That person doesn't embody the truth. If they truly embodied it, it they would live it out. They would act upon it. Verse 5 in 1 John 2, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly, notice that word true keeps coming up, but in significantly different ways than just knowledge. Love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Jesus was truth and grace. Boy, I hear those words and I just feel like I'm sitting at that table back in California across from Wes and I hear him say about this knowledge and me, a professor of theology at a college nearby who loves the intellectual game, felt the reality, man, if I just leave it there, if it's just about knowledge, if I'm not loving God more, loving neighbor more, loving one another more, and less loving of self, then I'm no different than Abner in this text or the demonic forces that James 2 mentions as a powerful analogy. Christians, are we those who only know the truth or are we those who live the truth? Let that sink in, that question the Lord asks of each of us today. The last part of the text, and Abner is, at least in one self-benefiting way, a man of his word. He shows up in verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, make an agreement with me and I will help you bring all Israel over to you. He's a kingmaker. That's what he is. In fact, if we went back to chapter 2 in 2 Samuel, verse 8, that's exactly what he did with Ishbosheth, and now he's trying to do it with David. Again, remember what verse 6 warned us? He's trying to strengthen his own position. And David decides to allow him to help. Abner clearly wanted power and was going to make a gain by his new political allegiance. Would you have trusted Abner? Again, remember, the reader actually may know more than David did. David may not have known what just happened in the house of Saul. He just has a man come to him, acknowledging, as he says in a few verses later, that God has selected him to be king. David knows that to be true. He wants to help that. David's trying to avoid the political conflict going on between God's people, and he decides, yeah, this, this providentially may be a good thing. Would you trust Abner? Should David have followed his lead? 
text doesn't answer all those questions, but we feel that. It's worth asking if David's approach was the most God-honoring, knowing he may have had a limited perspective on all that was happening. And to be fair, there was collateral damage in this. Notice one of the, one of the bargaining realities is that David wants his first wife back, Michal, who had already been betrothed to another husband, married to another husband. Look at verses 15 and 16. So Abner gets Isbosheth to get the wife to go back to David, and look at 16. Her husband, however, went with her. Like she's traveling to her original husband, and he's brokenhearted, traveling with her all the way, weeping, it says. Weeping behind her all the way. Until Abner said, get out of here, and he leaves. There was some collateral damage with that as well. What do we see in this? I think these, this text is telling us, don't be an Abner. Someone who knows the truth but does not live it. In fact, Abner's example teaches us a couple things. First, Abner's example reveals why we might do something that is wrong. Abner made Ishbosheth king, even though by his own account, twice in this text, he knew that David was God's choice. That takes some guts. Abner did not support Saul's family because he was a Saul loyalist or because he was obedient to the will of God. Abner was after personal gain, power, wealth, and prestige. The warning to us is clear. You and I will be tempted to live in a way that seeks our own good and gain, that rationalizes God's truth to our own advantage, that spins it. So it's not really a command. It's just a suggestion, right? Rather than obeying God's clearly stated commands, don't be an Abner. Live the truth. Abner's example also reveals, secondly, why we might do something that is right. In one sense, what Abner did was good and right. The rightful God-selected king was now getting proper backing. But he wasn't doing that because he was honoring God's will. Abner supported David for his own gain. He was challenged and threatened by the house of Saul, and he had a political temper tantrum. And he changed sides because it was most advantageous for him. Again, a warning to us. You and I will be tempted to help, to serve, or to give to people, not because it is how we want to love God and neighbor, but how we might look good to others, or how we might gain something from others, or how we might even feel good about ourselves. Don't be an Abner. Brothers and sisters, you can just feel the weight of this text, hard text, Right In one sense, this, there's a lot of names and a lot of examples and cultural expressions that are hard to understand, but I think the message is actually pretty clear. A Christian does not just honor God with their words. They honor God with their deeds. A Christian is not just somebody who knows the truth. The Christian is somebody who lives the truth. 
And that, even just as we apply that, for all of us, me included, as we apply this text to our lives, right? It is not just that we learn something about Abner and we walk away and say, that was interesting, or I didn't know that dogs were so hated in the ancient world. Like, I mean, again, it's not just about knowing something. It's about looking at ourselves and saying, how am I fighting inside me, even in spiritualizing ways, God's kingship and lordship over me? And that's not something that necessarily I can see in you or even you can see in me, but the Lord can see as he ministers to us, as he convicts us, but as he comforts us. We just sang songs about the spirit comforting and keeping us and sustaining us, a loving father who beckons us toward him, the one, you are the one we adore, we sang over and over again. Not a self-love like Abner, but an other-focused love of God because he is worthy. And when a real change has happened, when a real Christian new creation has begun, we become lesser and he becomes greater. And we say the Lord's Prayer not just by memory, but by embodiment. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Not Abner's will. Not Mickey's will, not even David's will. Your will be done, your kingdom come on earth in my life, in my heart, as it is in heaven. The last words of verse 21 are worth noting. The last quote from Abner, David said that, Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, Notice that honorific language. So that they may make a covenant with you, and here's the statement, the last thing Abner says in our text, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. No, Abner. No, David. It's not what your heart desires. In fact, David is called a man after God's own heart. He should know better. It's about what God desires. Let, let us hear that warning, that loving warning from a God who created the world with a good design, who is a benevolent ruler and is a holy judge and graciously offers us his life. And let's not be afraid to take that. Let's pray. Father, help us to be the kind of people who want to follow your heart who want to desire what is best for you and our people and your kingdom. Father, that Lord's Prayer, while saying your will be done, is bold language, way easier to memorize and to say than it is to live. Help us be a people who are not like Abner, who hear the revealed will of God and respond and obey, even when it's hard to trust. Father, help us to be, quite simply, help us to be a people who not just know the truth, but live the truth. And we ask that you apply the word, the message of this text to each of us as we need to hear it by your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.